Yeah, and if I was a copper and I'd stopped you in the street, I'd immediately be like, he's he's carrying, you know, he's packing. <laughs> <laughs> I'd profile you in an instant. Like I'd be like, dick. <laughs> <laughs> basically, looks like a Bond villain. Definitely <laughs> has a concealed laser. Hi there, thanks for tuning in to episode 5 of the Ross Trevino Project. Today's guest is a charity worker who has worked for such organisations as Child Reach International, the International Service, St Mungo's and the British Council. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Tommy Collins. That's one thing I've discovered from uh, doing the podcast is I don't really have a very good grip on the English language. It's <laughs> <laughs> nothing like trying to record yourself and put it out there to uh, to prove that you do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, well. So anyways, uh, let's take it back to the beginning. Where were you conceived? <laughs> no, i just kidding. Where were you born? <laughs> You know what? You know what? I'm I'm one of the people in the world who have the really um, igno- ignoble honour of um, ignominious. What's the word for it? I, it's a terrible honour anyway. That I um I was born on in the ninth month. So if you track back when I was conceived, I was born on the sixth of September, and I was a week late. So that's yeah. precisely fucking New Year's Eve. Oh, <laughs> so really? I don't know where oh, my wow. parents were, what they were doing, but yeah, I'm I'm the product of a drunken Gregorian revelry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I haven't I'm, even tried to work say, it out. I'm going to say in wantage because, yeah, I, I feel like they didn't really get out very much, my parents. No? <laughs> Are they still uh, around? Yeah, my... um, It's nice, actually, because like, I only came back to the UK in, um, in September, so I haven't been around for, like, the last nine months or something. It's been, yeah, really nice to reconnect with family. I really needed it after I came back because I had such a horrible sort of end to um, my last volunteering placement oh really what happened oh, I, haven't, I haven't seen you since i've got a 10-year travel ban for israel what? <laughs> yeah. What did you do? yeah man so the israeli government and i had serious ideological differences about what i was and wasn't allowed to do while i was in the state of israel so <laughs> <laughs> to cut a long story short i am um, i went on a volunteering placement in the West Bank, so in Ramallah. And in order to get there, because obviously it's a occupied territories, you have to go through Israel. So the you only flight through you can like get a into... border check. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. So so if you conceptualize like uh, very this is very reductive, but if you conceptualize the, the Palestinian um Israeli conflict is it's basically like Nazi Germany and France in World War Two. So Israel is an occupied country. All the borders are closed. The only way you can get in and out is by going in through Israel. So the charity that I was working with knew that um, knew that I was going to need to do this. But they also knew that quite a lot of academics and um, aid workers have been turned back at the border. So they would fly into Israel, get past Israeli sort of border controls, get into the country and then fall at the last hurdle, getting from Israel, driving into into Palestine. So Palestine is split into two parts, right? You've got the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. And I can't speak for the the Gaza Strip because it's basically totally no-go, but the West Bank was where I was trying to get to. Um, and the capital of the West Bank, Ramallah, is the de facto capital of the Palestinian state. And then in lieu of the fact that, um, that Jerusalem is occupied, 
So I was trying to get to Ramallah where my placement was and they knew that I would really, really struggle. So if I told them the truth, so this charity knowingly, you know, like walked me down the path and taught me, schooled me through how I was going to lie to get through. So what were you going to say? yeah, so basically, when when you get stopped in in Israel, when you like land into the country, that's when the sort of problems start because the Secret Service are very reluctant to let you in, right? <laughs> well, anyone. So, well, they were reluctant to let me in anyway. So, I'm I'm the one one of the only people in the queue that was stopped. Oh really? And, uh, yeah. So my my charity gave me um, ghost bookings. So they gave me this fake story. They they walked me through what I was going to say, coached me through a sort of like um, like role play where they were being like really obnoxious Israeli border guards, and I was like, yes, I, I'm only here to uh, to see Jerusalem and the sights and all this stuff. And they gave me some bookings on like Hostel.com for like different hostels in places like uh, Elat uh, and in Tel Aviv. So so I had this kind of like this itinerary in my head. So when they asked me, where are you going? I could, I could say all this stuff. Now, um, the, we have an agreement with, um, with Israel. We're meant to as a country where as a citizen of the UK, if you rock up in Israel without any warning, they should just give you a three month visa. Like it's, it's part of like, you know, like the Schengen agreement or something like that. In reality, they're very reluctant to give it out because they know that no one would be in Israel for three months. There's, there's just not that much to see. So if you're coming <laughs> not chances are you're going to be working and, and you're going to be doing it illegally. So immediately they're like, where are you going? I'm like, tell them all this stuff. Yeah. They obviously don't believe me at all. They're like, why do you need to be here for three months? I'm like, well, I just quit my job, had some cash, fancied, you know, going to some beaches and seeing some sites. They were like, well, you could have gone to, you could have gone to Spain. Why didn't you go to Spain? I'm like, what? <laughs> well, why didn't you go to France? It's way closer. I'm like, well, I heard good things well, about Israel. Good. Who from? <laughs> All this stuff. They're, they're not really yeah. selling it. What, but why'd you come in? No. <laughs> Seriously. Absolutely. And that was it, you know. But this, like, it started off as being a, a kind of awkward, well, I sort of wanted to, yeah. to, you're, you're being detained. <laughs> so I was taken off to one side and, like, and pulled into this side room. And on my way in, I was detained for a good, like, two and a half hours. And, and at least an hour of that time, as soon as I got into this room, a big burly secret service uh, agent took my phone and was like, give me your phone. So I give him my phone. He's tell me your unlock code. So I tell him the code and he unlocks it and he switches through my phone. And he's there for an hour. <laughs> I'm not even shitting you an hour. I could just go through my phone, <laughs> like reading all my messages, searching for stuff. And, the the charity had warned me about this before, you know, tourists get this sometimes if they think that you're a political activist or they think yeah. you're working for an NGO. So they do this, all this stuff. Mm. So I, I'd gone through my phone beforehand and deleted any reference to Palestine I could find, any reference to the boycott, divest and sanctions movement, any any word like occupation, you know, I deleted all of it. So we had nothing to find and I was sort of sitting there quite smug about it. But what I didn't realize is that it wasn't sort of a crime of what you have there. It's a crime of what you don't have. So it's very obvious. Like I had no messages to my mum or anything because I'd have to delete all these messages saying, right, see you, mum. I hope you have a good time in Palestine. Just delete that conversation. Oh, I see. So he's like, why haven't you told anyone you're coming to Israel? (laughs) 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 And all this stuff. And honestly, like he asked me about my... um, you know, my, my sexual preferences, my mental health, like my appetite, like the weirdest questions just to see what I would, I would say. Yeah. I got it light, by the way, like somebody I worked with got asked the first question they were asked in their interrogation was, do you think we're killing Palestinian children? <laughs> like, what can you 
budget. <laughs> That's a good uh, icebreaker. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I, they just kind of want to make you feel uncomfortable so they can tell whether you're lying. And like at the end of it, he gave me the three month visa and he said, words to the effect, like, I, I know you're trying to fuck me. I know you're trying to fuck me, but don't show me your dick. It's like, if you work here, I will find out. If you if you work for money at all, if you volunteer, if you do anything other than what you said you would do, I will find you. <laughs> I have special service skills, I'll find you. And I'm looking at him like, he could definitely find me. <laughs> <laughs> and so I've told him this cock and bull story about like hanging out in Israel anyway. And by the time I get out, this is like three hours later, everyone's gone. It's the middle of the night, I'm in fucking Tel Aviv airport. And yeah. I go to walk out. And on the baggage carousel, the only bag there is mine that's just oh. obviously been going around for like three hours. And as I walk up to it, the engine like cuts out and my bag gives me this really dirty look like you left me here, yeah. man. <laughs> <laughs> so I sling the bag over my shoulder, still hyper aware that these, um, that these people, these eyes are on me, you know, they're still watching me. And he's already asked me, like, where are you going to stay tonight? I said, I was going to get a taxi to uh, to this hostel. And as I'm walking out, this massive Arab bloke, like, I was holding a sign saying, Tommy, to, like, ruin my cover. <laughs> yeah, that was just, that was getting in. Like, getting out was way worse. Oh, what? Uh, so, so did you manage to get into the West Bank or did you just kind of, like, fuck this? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I was really thrown, and, and I spoke to the charity when I got in, and they said, "Look, if you are being watched, if you are being followed, the best thing to do is just lay low, like hang out in Tel Aviv for a few days, chill out, go to the beach, do some stuff on your own, and make it look like you're just a tourist." So, if you are being followed, and I, I was thinking, like, what did you have, really have the resources to follow me around all the time? But like, I'd obviously never been there before, so didn't know. So after I checked into my hostel, I spent the next few days in Tel Aviv, and like. If anything, it sets you up way, way worse for the things that you're about to see because Tel Aviv is like Miami, you know? It's like, it's absolute paradise. It's got a beautiful beach. Everyone's gorgeous. Um, the currency is really strong. P things are like British priced. Um, it's just really nice weather and really lovely. It's obviously very affluent. Mm. So a couple of days there chilling out thinking like, I'm basically getting paid to hang out on a beach. This is fucking awesome. <laughs> Um, and then I got a cab from from there through one of the checkpoints into 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 the West Bank. So there's a couple of different ways you can get in. But after the Oslo Accord, which was um, I, I don't think it was the early 90s. I might be wrong about that. Um, basically, the, the country was sort of Palestine was divided into different zones, zone A, zone B, zone C. And whatever the sort of name of it was pertained to who controlled it. So the occupying Palestinian um, Israeli special forces kind of occupy all of it, but they gave some of the control back to the um, the Palestinian government that was in situ in order to look after the big cities and deal with the municipal stuff like uh, rubbish collections and hospitals and that kind of stuff. Uh, what so year I was this? I'm not sure. I, I, I'll look it up. It was the Oslo Accord. It was basically one of the the worst um, instances of kind of um, imposition of human rights law on on. Um, on a refugee people like it split up the palestinian diaspora and made uh, made infighting and conflicts within the palestinian people a lot more serious but it was like i think it was a response to a lot of um terrorist attacks that were going on in jerusalem so there was huge pressure from the international community for the palestinians to sign something anything that was like a peace treaty mm. so i think the Oslo accord came out of that but yeah so i, I crossed in through the kalandia checkpoint so it you cannot explain it to anybody really you have to see it for yourself because you travel from the most beautiful what looks like 
like a Mediterranean country, you know, beautiful cypresses and, and really beautiful buildings and lots of wealth down these immaculate motorways. And you're heading out of civilization into this sort of um, mountainous landscape. Mm. But as civilization falls at the wayside, you start to see like the the tail signs of war. So barbed wire everywhere, burnt out cars, um, burnt tires and things. And that's sort of like you're getting you're getting a bit of a flavor. And then you start to see the actual checkpoints. So the road is, all the roads are covered in cages. They're, they're funneled in different directions. And my driver is explaining to me, like, this is a road for, for Israelis. Like, look at the number plates. These are Israeli plates. That one is a road for Palestinians. And you look at the Palestinian road and it's like an absolute dirt track. And you're like, right, there's, there's something going on here. And you can so see that... Two, all those... is, this, is this like segregated roads or is this like oh, yeah. on one side of the fence to the other? So that's like part of palestine and then that's israel no no they're segregated roads so the actual where where the border is 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 like a quite a lot of the way of the border is no man's land so it's just sort of wasteland which is covered in barbed wire but these roads are sort of intertwined if you imagine spaghetti junction you could be driving up one motorway which is immaculate you know like no sound as you're going up in a really plush car and you see underneath you a really crappy road with with loads of burnt out cars on it and like people sort of like dragging carts and stuff on it It, it's it's awful and but the most surreal thing about getting in is when you get to an armed checkpoint so they say the biggest weapon of propaganda that the israeli um the Israeli government ever had was conscription, right? What so, does conscription mean? So conscription is um, is mandatory um, armed service. So when, when children reach oh. a certain age, they have to join the military. Mm. The only way they can get out of it is uh, is by becoming a religious minister. So this this government has got this continual stream of, of new soldiers, new recruits that must be part of the government and must be part of the military in order to kind of hypnotize them and and as some might argue, you know, you know, brainwash them, indoctrinate them. But the weirdest thing is, is when you pull up at one of these checkpoints, the person who stops your car, who's holding an, um, a, an automatic gun and wearing a pair of fucking aviators, is 17 years old. Like, they're kids with guns, literal kids with guns, and they're holding them up to you, like, demanding to know where you're from and where you're going. And you're thinking, like, <laughs> what? <laughs> your uniform <laughs> doesn't fit. Like, <laughs> you're what, wearing what? makeup. Like, you're the... <laughs> It's, yeah, it's super what is bizarre. the age that they have to join the military? So, uh, again, I might be wrong on this. I, I think it's 16 for boys and 17 for girls. And they get the, the, the way the crack works is they get um, a couple of years that they have to spend in there. And then when they get out, they get given, unless they stay in the military, they get given like a lump sum to sort of start their new life. So I've experienced this before when I was traveling in India. Like I went to, to the north of India and uh, in Ladakh, it's basically everybody there is an Israeli who's just finished their armed service and they're all just lying around as stoned as they could possibly be. Like, I've been in the military for like four years, man. Like, I, I needed this. That's funny. In a, in a case where, you know, if you're in the, a military in a country where it's voluntary, you'd get kicked out for smoking weed. What happens when you're somewhere where it's like, where it's built into the law that you have to be in the military? Do you still get kicked out or do you get put in jail I, I for the rest of the time? Do you know? I, I don't know. I, I would have thought that probably the, the you know the court martial system exists in order to sort of reprimand people and, and whatnot for that. But I think if it was compulsory service, they they probably wouldn't want to kick them out. I, I I really strongly believe it's like the most powerful propaganda tool that um that the Israeli government have to perpetuate this sort of sense of us and them between Israelis and Palestinians because. If you're, you could be forgiven, right, for being in the UK and seeing the conflict on TV and being like, okay, there's, 
you see scenes about Gaza and you see Israeli soldiers firing rubber bullets. You see Palestinians uh, with catapults, like throwing Molotovs and stuff like that. And then you're like, yeah, I understand the word conflict. But that is the biggest fallacy. It's the biggest fallacy of all. It's not conflict. It's an occupation. So the people on the walls are the most heavily armed military in the world. They're, they're incredibly well armed and well equipped. And the people on the other side are kids, you know, they're kids throwing, throwing pebbles. So already you've got this weird power dynamic. But when there are isolated attacks, when there are rockets fired and there are like it is a conflict in some areas when, when there are deaths. The people who immediately face those and see those firsthand are those children who are in the military. So you did, you never needed a more powerful tool to sort of say, these guys are bad guys and we're good guys. Like they've snuck up and they've killed X amount of people who were 17, 18, you know, they they had their whole lives ahead of them. And that's that again is a big propaganda tool. And there were instances of of illegal settlements where Palestinian paramilitaries went in, you know, like kidnapped soldiers, uh, young soldiers and yeah, and that there are atrocities committed on both sides, definitely. Oh, okay. Uh, that's interesting. Yeah, heavy stuff. It's definitely a place I've wanted to visit. It sounds a bit more scary now that you're talking about it, but I do actually quite want to go see the religious sites over there. Uh, so how what, what happened with you getting kicked out? So um, to cut a long story short, I, once I got into Ramallah, I was sort of safe. Um, I was only occupying, I was only sort of, going to Palestinian businesses. I was only interacting with Palestinians. So as long as I stayed in the city, I, I was good. You know, they, the Israeli military shouldn't be in Ramallah. It is a lot of the time, but it shouldn't be. And I have an international passport. If I was caught at any point, I just, you know, I'm, I'm British. Like, I, please take me to an embassy. Um, <laughs> which is terrible. Like when you, when you know the kind of, yeah, the, the awful sort of um, theft of, of liberty and movement the Palestinian people suffer. But when I, when I, um, like I was there for a couple of months and, and during that time a close friend of mine died yeah really good guy um, just absolute yeah really really loving really happy really live life to the full sort of man um, and he was a really good friend of mine and when he passed away it was quite sudden yeah you know I was I was in the Middle East I was living on my own I was working in refugee with refugees in a really sort of psychologically demanding kind of role and and when it happened like i there was no way i couldn't at least try to come back to the uk to go to his funeral like he was a very important friend to me and so i spoke to the charity i was working with and they obviously knew you know coming back through this is a bit of a gamble <clears throat> because it's not necessarily the way in when they'll catch you it's the way back out they want to know where you've been <clears throat> so I packed all my bags up in Ramallah, like said goodbye to the people that I was um, working with because I didn't know whether I'd come back. Mm. And uh, and I, I took another cab back out through the Columbia checkpoint, back through all the guns, back through. And the only reason, you know, we were able to get through is because every time we get to one of these checkpoints, I wave my passport. So we get through. And when I got to the airport, um, the guy dropped me off and was like, look, you, you need to have a really good backstory. You need to, to stick by your guns and, and, um, and have, have a story as to where you've been because you will get stopped. And I'm thinking, that'll be fine, you know, like the way in, that was a bit dodgy, but this will be fine. I was profiled before I'd even walked into this airport and the whole place is crawling with cameras. And when I got to the front, um, the open doors, I was stopped by, by a girl who said, hi, can I have your passport? Gave my passport and it always starts off really nice. So where have you been? Well, I've been to Jerusalem, I've been to Allah, I've been to da, 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 da. Okay. Uh, have you got any pictures on your phone? I'm like, sorry have you got any pictures of these places <laughs> like, that was awfully quick i'm like no i don't I, I don't really take very many pictures 
Um, she's like, okay, have you got any bookings on your phone that you can show me? So I showed her the first couple of ones. And these are obviously from months ago. And she was like, okay, that's all right. Um, so why are, you, why are you going back now? Because she could see I had time left on my visa. And my friend's died. And, and the charity had said to me, you know, when you go back, kind of try and sow the seeds. Try and, try and say um, you're going to be coming back just in case you get more hassle on the way back in. Because I planned to go home for a week and then come back. Um, and then she, she sort of let me go and it felt a bit weird at the time. It was like, you, you, I haven't given you answers to the questions you've asked, but she was like, off you go. So I walked in and I went up to a machine to print off my, my, um, flight details and I feel, um, like a presence behind me and I turn around and there's two armed guards <laughs> and I can tell that she sent the armed guards over to me and they asked me the same questions. Yeah. They're quite friendly. Like, where have you been? Where are you going? Um, got any pictures? What was the purpose of your visit here? <laughs> Carrying any contraband? <laughs> like, nope, 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 nope. <laughs> just, just pleasure. And they walk off, and I'm like, wow, that, that was kind of scary, but I got away with it. Um, and then I went to stand in the queue to drop my baggage off, and I'm in this queue for like a good two hours. Yeah. A really long queue. And everybody said, you know, when you go to an airport in the UK, like give yourself three hours because you're going to like, if something happens and you'll have time to check in, blah, blah, blah. If you fly through Tel Aviv, through Ben Gurion Airport, give yourself six hours, you know, because something awful is going to happen. <laughs> so you just you wait, man. You'll love the end of this story. I'm telling you. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, I'm, go I'm waiting in this queue and, uh, and it starts winding down and it's getting smaller and smaller and there's loads of people, you know, there's families, there's people with kids and uh, when I get towards the end of the queue, another lady is walking up through the queue and she's asking people, oh, who are you travelling with? So she gets a few people in front of me, it's a family, who are you travelling with? I'm travelling with my wife and my children, oh, okay, lovely, have a good flight. Next people, who are you travelling with? I'm travelling with my girlfriend, da da da. Next few people, they're all like groups gets to me who are you traveling with I'm, oh, I'm just on my own okay keeps going and i'm like all uh, right and then she gets a few more people down the line then turns around and is like excuse me sir could you come with me and i'm talking in this queue there are good like 500 people <laughs> and i sling my big military rucksack over my back huge rucksack and i walk out of the queue and they're all watching me they're like something's happening so she drags me off to one side um Puts, I put my bag down and starts the interrogation like in front of people and she's asking me questions like oh where have you been what were you doing where were you on this date and I'm kind of I'm trying to come up with this story you know I'm I was in this place at this time I uh I've just been drinking you know sort of having a good time I met a lot of people it's like where are your photos well I don't really take very many photos well how have you been spending your time well you know just sightseeing da 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 okay but but you weren't drinking all day like well no so what did you do in the day well i did a bit of writing and that immediately she was like oh you did some writing okay can i can i see your laptop so she makes me drag my laptop out and everyone around can see like i'm opening up my bags it's very obviously like something's going on did you have any writing to show her yeah so, so i open up my laptop and I, i've been working on some short stories while i was there yeah. but it but the date on like the microsoft word when you open a folder it's like last edited on this date so I'm like oh, oh man. <laughs> it's quite some days ago and i'm like trying to say you know i'm quite sort of like embarrassed about my work it's not finished yet i'd rather you didn't read it she's like well i'm going to so so I'm like, at this point, do I do I get a bit offended? Because I've been held up for... This, it's getting on like half an hour. Mm. And the same questions over and over again. And she's basically saying, in not so many words, like, I don't believe you. 
and eventually she calls somebody over she calls over what looks like her manager and he's this really clean cut like chic absolutely like chiseled bloke rocks up and he's wearing like an immaculate suit and then he puts his hands on his hips and i see his right hand on his hip doesn't land on his hip it lands on a gun which is underneath his jacket and i'm like oh, okay so he's like oh, okay so um you're gonna you're gonna unlock your phone for me i'm like no i'm not gonna do that so you are gonna do that like i'm not i I don't understand what this is all this about i need to go home i've got a funeral i've got a flight to catch in a couple of hours i need to go home like you know trying the indignant tourist and uh and he's like you're going to unlock your phone i'm like i don't think so he's like right so he he's like pick up your bag so i pick up my bag and i walk up he sort of leads me frog marches me to the front desk of like baggage drop and, uh, and still these 500 people are watching me and he gives gives my bag to them. And he's like, right, take this, um, talks to them in, in Hebrew. So I don't understand anything. And he drags me back, like follow me, he takes me into the side room. And at this point, I've got nothing. You know, I've got my phone in my pocket and no baggage or anything. He's like, right, you're going to be searched. I'm like, oh, right, I've got nothing to hide. You can search me. Um, and he's like, well, you're going to unlock your phone. I'm like, I'm not going to do that at all. I've, I've got messages on there, you know, important things of mine. They're nothing to do with you. He's like, we're going to get into your phone either way. I'm like, are you really going to confiscate my phone? Like, what, what do you think I am? A terrorist or something? And he's like, I don't know what you are, but you're, you know, you're incredibly suspicious and you're a, a potential threat to the state of Israel. <laughs> I'm thinking, oh, I am a potential threat to the state of Israel. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so he, he takes all my stuff and he's like, take your shoes off. So I take my shoes off and I'm st- sat there in like shorts and a t-shirt, barefoot. And he lines my things up on this massive, it's like a four meter long metal table. And then in walk, I'm five of the most beautiful people I've ever seen. They walk in, line up along the desk. Well, ladies. Pull on the gloves. Well, ladies and men. And pull, pull on these gloves, like pop. And they start to dissemble my bag and they're taking everything oh, apart. I thought like, they were going to do something else with the gloves. You wait. <laughs> they open my bag and and they're pulling out like my dirty laundry and my dirty oh, socks and looking at me like you filthy beast <laughs> like <laughs> going through everything. they flick through all my books like they take my laptop and immediately they they unscrew the back of it and take something out of it like all my memory keys and stuff and uh and this goes on and goes on and the guy is still saying you're going to tell me the truth you're going to be arrested you're not going to make your flight you're, you're going to prison i'm like i have nothing to hide like yeah he's like for yeah just basically i I don't believe your account of what you were doing while you were in israel so i I need to know and uh and he's yeah you know sort of shouting at me and stuff i'm like yeah i I can't really help you here mate i I don't really know what to say i've just been sort of wandering around in israel um and he says right okay so um could you step with me into this room and empty your pockets on the desk? So I empty my pockets and two bigger, burlier, like military camo clad blokes appear out of nowhere. You know, their boots are so shiny and they're squeaking as they're walking down like the shiny parquet floor. They're like, right, step, step, behind the <laughs> step behind the curtain, please. Do you uh, remove your trousers now? And for my efforts, the Israeli government made me drop my trousers there and then, bend over and touch my toes so they could show me where the fucking white rabbit goes. Like, two guys. I mean, like, I think one of them might have been there to restrain me, but I just, you know, I turned into custard while I was there. I was like, oh, God. <laughs> well, while they strip searched me, they took my clothes off. They, they had a good search around. They cupped the balls. They rummaged up <laughs> them. Yeah, they did. Yeah. They, they had what a were curse. they looking for? 
I think they were just trying to unsettle me in whatever way. That... <laughs> <laughs> it's just trying to psych you out. <laughs> so anyway, you like all this is going on, like I'm in my mind, I'm like I'm going to prison. You know, I'm I'm never going to see my family again. I'm going to get banged up here in the Tel Aviv Hilton. Like I'm I'm never getting back to the UK. And all the while, my flight, my time is clocking down to my flight. You know, there's like half an hour left in my flight at this point. I'm pretty 100% certain I'm not going to make it. And then after another like 10 minutes of sitting there, uh, 20 minutes of sitting there in silence, the guy appears out of nowhere and says, you're going to be able to make your flight, but you're going and nothing else. All of your things are staying in Israel so we can search them properly. What? Um, what? He's like, yeah, you, you can you can ask. You can take stuff with you. You can have your passport because you'll need it. And you can take whatever money you have. And in my pocket, I have like four shekels, man. Like, this, it's like, <laughs> I have no money. Yeah. Um, and he's like, yeah, okay. So this is the stuff. I'm like, what about my phone? Yeah, I can't take your phone. Like, well, how, how can I call people on the other side? He's like, that's really not my problem. Like, well... What about my watch? Because I, I had a I had a really lovely wooden watch that I got given by by next partner. It's super sentimental. Mm. Uh, can I can I please take my watch? No, you can't take it. It's got a uh, battery inside it. It's, it's it could be a bomb. Like it's a wooden watch. I'll take it apart for you right now. It's very obviously made of wood. Please, it's really sentimental. And he's like, no. And the watch he picks up for good measure and puts in a separate bag. Uh, that's for later. So he, he whistles a couple of his cronies, uh, says some stuff in Hebrew, and they basically frog march me, wearing shorts, T-shirt, four shekels in one pocket, passport in the other, and flip-flops, because he's taken my shoes. He frog marches me without my bag to the gate where I was meant to take my flight. Now, the same 500 people who saw me get pulled out of the queue by security now see me with a bag, now yeah. see me get re-delivered to the queue just before the flight, by two armed guards with very big guns and no backpack. So After I look getting arse molested as... and robbed. <laughs> yeah, so I have a very sheepish look on my face at this point. Like, it's been a traumatic ordeal. And they drop me off there, like, get on your flight, sort of thing. Yeah. And I'm like, I have no phone. I have no way of contacting anyone. So I'm frantically asking people, you know, can I borrow your phone? And they're like, oh, don't have a phone. Sorry, mate. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. This guy's dodgy. <laughs> so I, I get on this flight and everyone, you know, is like, what's going on? Like everyone is, is talking about it because I've, I've very clearly been frisked. Oh, you know? Did you oh, have your own little uh, mini Truman show where everyone knew who you were? Yeah. <laughs> but the best thing about it is when I got back in the UK, when I, when I landed, so obviously nobody talked to me on the flight. It was a long, awful flight back to the UK. And I stopped off in, in Brussels on the way back, a connecting flight. And then when I landed in the UK, I was going through passport control. And like I, I had nothing on me. Everybody's picking up bags and stuff. I'm going through passport control. And I feel a hand on my shoulder. And I'm like, oh, fuck, not again. And I turn around. And this guy, he's he's like Arabic, you know. He's he's, he's a British guy, but um, he's looking at me. And he, he looks Palestinian. Oh, okay. He's like, I, I saw what happened there. And just wanted you to know, like, you're one of us, like your friend. And he knew nothing about me. He knew absolutely zero. I very much could have been, you know, like could have been a terrorist or whatever. He's like, <laughs> I saw how they dealt with you. And that's how I know that you're not with them. Like, and if you're not with them, you are with us. And I'm looking at him and he's like 16 or something. I'm like, cheers. Man. Any chance I could use your phone? He's like, yeah, man. <laughs> I thought he was like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> 
the boy who got him. <laughs> so he hands me his phone, and the only number that I can remember off the top of my head is Jerry. So I ring up Jerry, like, please come and get me from the airport. Oh, that's and, uh, yeah, with any I up. would be fucked. I literally don't know anyone's phone number. Yeah, I'll yeah. Pop I was thinking my I'd, parents' house phone. That's it. I'd ring my grandparents or something, but it was like three in the morning. So like, there's, <laughs> there's no way. I, yeah, and it, yeah, and I eventually I got back, but. So when I got back, they'd give me instructions to like how this is how you'll try to get your stuff back if we release it. So I, I applied like for a good like three weeks trying to apply to get it back. And in the meantime, I've talked to the charity and they're like, yeah, we, we are not sending you back to, to Israel because you you're going to have a travel ban. You know, if you go there, you will be arrested. Yeah. So I wait three weeks and I get a letter from um, from Ben Gurion Airport from like the security there effectively saying like don't come back with all my stuff and I go through my bag and like it's very obvious like all, all has been like ransacked mm. and then I find my watch my wooden watch at the bottom of the thing at the bottom of the bag and it's smashed to oh, pieces exactly. yeah like they literally got it put it in a bag put it on the floor and stamped on it like it you couldn't have written it like they it just as soon as I told them oh this is really sentimental like I should have just known that's getting destroyed so like for the next like two three weeks, I need to get rid of my phone. I need to get rid of my laptop. Like I'm going to be tracked. <laughs> yeah, but harrowing, scary, and and now I'm not allowed to go back to Israel. But <laughs> uh, that sounds like a blessing in disguise. <laughs> to be honest, yeah. I don't think you're in any rush to go back there. Uh, oh, uh, have you got any other stories from the other places you've been? What what charity were you working for when you went there? By the way. So the charity that I was working with in Palestine was um, was Palestine Sports for Life. So they're an organisation that do kind of sports therapy with refugee children in and out of um, the capital city. Okay. It's kind of like a sort of build up confidence in, in refugee children who have sort of have it imprinted on them from a very young age that they're worth nothing and and they're, they're the other, you know, they're, they will never amount to anything. The opportunities that they have are really small. So, um, yeah, it's kind of using sports as a tool to, to coach children and, and work them through like picking up language skills and picking up other kind of like leadership things and, and qualities like that that will help them in, in later life. So really cool charity. Um, and they were partnered with um, a charity in the UK, International Service, mm. one of the best charities I've ever worked with. I, I was with um, working with them when I was in Burkina Faso, and yeah, they're, they're absolutely great. What was that place you just said? So Burkina Faso um, in West Africa. That was the oh. first place I went and did a went and did a placement. Yeah, really, really cool country. Um, bizarre place. Uh, I'm very war torn. Like they, it was in the news quite recently again for. Um, for fighting between effectively kind of ISIS in the north of the country. And um, yeah, well, I, while I was there, there were a couple of terrorist attacks. It's, it's very much on the, on the British government's kind of do not go to this place list. <laughs> but, is this ISIS wonderful... or is this ISIS affiliate? No, I'm pretty sure it's ISIS. It's they, ISIS. They, they operate in uh, in in the north North Africa in, in the Sahara Desert, basically. The, oh, okay. the area just, just south of the Sahara is called the Sahel. And they're uh, they're all over kind of um, yeah northern Burkina Faso. Yeah, but I'm talking badly of Burkina. Like it's it's genuinely the best country I've ever been to. The it's people nice are apart from the ISIS. <laughs> yeah, it's nice apart from the ISIS. Yeah, <laughs> they have. If you if you stay in the south, that's quite a long way from the north. <laughs> yeah, Just ruining it for everyone. So yeah, what uh, what was your experience like there? Mm. Very different. So it was. Uh, it's not. It's, you know, I've been to a couple of different developing countries before, but not in one that was such a state of of development as Burkina Faso is. It regularly ranks, you know, in the top, the low thirty um, 
you know, worst off countries economically. It, it really struggles in the human development index. Um, it owes a phenomenal amount through national debt to um, to France. And it's one of a handful of countries in, in West Africa, which is, so they use, um, they use the Central African franc. They call it the CIFA. So their whole currency is owned and maintained by France because they're old, old French colonies. So Burkina Faso used to be Upper Volta, Upper and Lower Volta, and it was um, it was it was run by Germans after being invaded by British people, like back in, in like hundreds of years ago, invaded by the British. It was then traded between I think the British, the Dutch, the Germans, and eventually ended up as a kind of a German protectorate. And then after World War II, when Germany's colonies got disbanded and handed over to other countries, it got given to France. And uh. Yeah, there's a real feeling of kind of anti-French sentiment for a lot of the young people that I spoke to because France just sort of owns the country, it owns its mineral wealth, it owns its currency, it owns everything. <laughs> I remember you telling me about going there as well, and if I remember correctly, you you weren't as competent at speaking French as you originally thought when you applied <laughs> to the job, and you had to learn some French while you were there. Yeah, so, that, yeah, I, I sort of told a bit of a porky. Oh, you told a porky, I... did you? <laughs> yeah. Can you speak French? Yeah. We. <laughs> <laughs> oui. So I, I I took GCSE French, right? I got a B at GCSE French. I was like, yeah, I can so win this. Oh, okay. I'll get Duolingo. I'll, I'll hammer it out. I got in in reality I got very very lucky. As soon as I got there, my um my partner in crime for the whole time, um, Muso Drago, he uh he taught me French. He his English was flawless. Like he he really walked me through there. He's so we were as, as UK volunteers. I was like a team leader from the UK. I was paired up with a Burkinabe guy, and we were all paired up with like a national volunteer who we'd create a project with and run the whole thing for UK volunteers and Burkinabes. It's like a cultural exchange, if you like, and uh. And I just, you know, hit the jackpot with this guy. He's just the most in- intelligent, charismatic, driven, passionate person. And, uh, yeah, it, it sort of over the course of seven months just became one of my closest friends. He's, yeah, like family to me and taught me French. But, yeah, one of the best things about having learned French in, a, in an African country is when I now talk French to uh, to French people, they look at me like, Ugh, what is your accent? <laughs> so do you sound African when you speak French? Yes, yeah, it's, it's, I sound African. I sound like a Jamaican speaking English. Like, <laughs> like what? <laughs> the, the best thing is, like, they're, they're French there. They they kind of mould it um, and mix it in with uh, their local dialects. Oh, so wow. where I was in the place, there's, there's like 30, 30 or more local dialects. And the one I was with um, is Moray. And in Moray, they have these very long kind of uh, drawly answers to, to questions. Like, if, if people are talking, you always have to be nodding and going, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh uh-huh, <laughs> to, like, show you're listening. So whenever I'm speaking French, I'm like, uh-huh, uh, uh, uh voila. <laughs> <laughs> French people are like, that's disgusting. <laughs> so, so that's more of the Africans, like, actual French people from France don't actually do that, but the people no, in Africa do that. <laughs> <laughs> are you well, they, Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah lovely country really welcoming welcoming people I'd, I'd, I'd love to go back hopefully I will I've, quite a lot of my volunteers there are now sort of at the points where they're starting their own families and having kids and things so yeah. hopefully I'll have a year where I get to go and see as many weddings as I can and yeah reconnect with some people oh that'd be cool oh nice mm. what, uh, what so which ones have you covered I'm looking at your charities you wrote that one what is St Mungo's or have you discussed that no, no, I haven't. So, yeah, I, I mean, 
I, I've worked for a lot of different charities and, and organizations in the third sector, like UK ones, international ones. Um, and when I got back from Burkina Faso, this was directly afterwards. I um, I really wanted to I really wanted to keep working in the third sector because if I'm being brutally honest, I, I get a massive kick out of being in a job where it allows me to kind of pour myself into helping people. And it's not a selfless act, you know, it's not I don't do it. I don't know, a different, a huge number of reasons. But one of the biggest ones is it gives me a real sense of, of satisfaction. It gives me a sense of purpose. So I wanted to find a job where I came back out of out of that country after having such an incredible experience where I knew I would still be sort of, yeah, helping and, and being able to get that same sort of feeling from my work and job satisfaction. So I looked at I looked at the UK and thought, I'm, I'm back in the UK now for a while. Like, what, what are the huge issues here? What are the massive issues in the UK which really affect me the same way as international development in, in the world does? And for Oxford, it's 100% it's homelessness. So I look at my, at my native city, like the one that I'm closest to, and, and the problem with homelessness there is so very acute. For such a wealthy, affluent city, you, you just it's inexplicable why this should happen it's inexplicable why it should happen in the uk but but oxford in particular you know there's so much revenue generated by the affluent people who live there in that, that part of the country that the council should be so well armed to be able to deal with this problem um and i, I looked at different organizations dealing with homelessness there. i looked at you know crisis and and response and aspire and all these oxford charities but the, the city's commission services um, to, to look after homelessness aren't run by the council at all. They, they sort of offer them out in, in auctions to, to tender, they call it. And the charities or the organisations which think that they can do the best job submit their application. They're like, right, if you give us X amount of money, we'll hire uh, Y amount of people and we'll do ABC with it. So Samungo's were the ones that won that contract in Oxford. So Samungo's handle all the sort of frontline um, homeless outreach services. So I applied to be a caseworker with them and started the job in September of 2018. Yeah. Yeah. So a very, very intense time going from the autumn. Like I think the UK had just had that ridiculously nice summer, right? So like real beautiful summer. Basically, I'm being very reductive here, but basically a lot of the homeless population in Oxford, like over that summer were like, we don't really need accommodation. <laughs> sort of, it's very warm outside. Like we, this level of engagements were an all-time low. You know, like we, a lot of people who were very entrenched rough sleepers didn't didn't really want to engage because they, they had no real sort of need to. And and as I as it transpires, as you probably imagine, it's a lot of the time when you're working with rough sleepers, in order to get people who have real complex needs, you know, substance misuse and um, um, or maybe psychological issues or issues of mental health, a lot of the times um, you you can do effective work with people who've been rough sleeping for ages and it's been normalised are sadly these, these times of conflict and crisis. So if there's something really terrible happens in their life to shake up the snow globe, like like a really awful night's sleep or, or something dramatic that's, that has a big emotional weight. Those times are when you can sort of get through to people sometimes. And that winter was horrendous. Um, yeah, just a really savage, savage winter. And, and it was a kind of odd process going from the summer where there was really low engagement all the way through this autumn where, you know, the, the leaves were changing, the city was getting colder, um, loads more people were flocking to the city out of like rural areas who had been rough sleeping in parks and things were coming into city centre to beg. And, uh, and around Christmas time, like the, the begging is, is at its sort of fever pitch, is at its highest point. So 
I mean, that Christmas, several people died in, in Oxford. People were dying of exposure. People were, were overdosing. There was a death in, in McDonald's of, of somebody who'd uh, got the wrong sort of injection site. People were dropping like flies. Um, and it was a really kind of emotionally challenging time. Some mungos were, were the kind of implementation of, of um, a government policy, which is the worst policy, one of the worst policies I've ever heard of. They, they kind of split their the way they want to deal with homelessness into two areas and one's called no first night out and that's targeted at people who've never rough slept before so like that's there's people who've been kind of in um victims of domestic abuse or something they've been very rapidly made homeless they have very high support needs mm. and they can't afford to be well no one can afford to be sleeping on the streets but the government make this calculated risk based on the amount of resources like i need to get you into a, a refuge or something so that's no first night out and technically if you if you are homeless you can go to any council like your council and say to them you know i, I have nowhere to stay and they should they have a duty of care to find you something okay. so that's one thing no first night out and the second one is no second night out and that's even more <laughs> <That's scary. the laughs> Yeah, man. So, like, no night out. And <laughs> they're talking to these people. They've literally been sleeping, like, in cardboard boxes and in Gloucester Green car park for, like, three years or something. No second night out. Are you for real? And in reality, like, some of these people, have, they had such high support needs. The, the argument was their support needs are so high that that we we can't accommodate them, you know? We can't accommodate them until they iron themselves out and straighten out their kind of drug problems or whatever. They, they're too high risk to be put in places. It's like, what? How, how could you possibly imagine someone's going to be able to deal with a, a a crack habit or a heroin habit while they're sleeping rough? Like, that is, it's just setting people up to fail. So so a lot of the, a lot of the, the, the money and the services and the support that was available was just totally missing the people who really needed it. And a lot of my job basically became, so there's two halves of it. There's outreach and casework. Mm. So the outreach is you, you go out and you identify new rough sleepers. You, no, no first night out. So someone will use a website. And I think they use it in Brighton too, you know. They definitely use it in Bristol. Mm. Something called Streetlink, which is a super cool website. Like if you, if you see somebody rough sleeping and you're worried about them, you can, you can type this into Google and you'll find it, Streetlink. And you basically, you write a short description of who they are, what you've seen, any worries you have, and you send it off. And it gets sort of triaged by, by people and sent out to the relevant place that should deal with it as a referral. And, and like people like the job I was doing, go out and try and find these people, you know, check they're okay. And nine times out of 10, it was people that you already knew who they were. You'd look at a referral and be like, uh, blue beanie, long oh. beard, has a small dog. You'd be like, I know exactly who that guy is. Like he's going to tell Bobby me. again. <laughs> I have to go there and he's going to be like fuck off mate but you still have to go there <laughs> you, you to still have to be like, told to fuck leave off. me alone <laughs> yeah and man we were going into Gloucester Green car park at like 6 in the morning just to have spice blown in our faces <laughs> people were like be up in the morning like what's up outreach <laughs> like oh man <laughs> how are you guys doing <laughs> yeah oh that's interesting so um, what percentage of the caseload of homeless people that you came across in your work was like struggled with either mental health or mental health or addiction okay that's, that's a really interesting question um i would say for me in my in my particular branch of it so there, there were different people who are different doing different roles you know there was somebody who would deal with um non-uk nationals you know people who didn't have recourse to public funds there were people who would deal with people who were very low risk <clears throat> and there were people like me who would kind of deal with everybody um for me, 
I'd say it's got to be nine in every ten people that I was that I was working with clients. You know, nine in every ten had very. <clears throat> I don't want to say serious issues, but but they had issues with either substance misuse or they'd been victims of domestic violence or perpetrators or there were things like sex offences, you know, that complicate their ability to be accommodated. Lots and lots of people had support needs, nine out of every ten. And the sad thing was that actually, if you didn't have support needs and you were, you know, if you if you didn't have an addiction problem and you didn't have a criminal record and you, and you weren't... Um, you, you weren't vulnerable in that way the system would actually triage you very quickly it, it would be able to sort you out and it would be able to help you because you were able to help yourself so if you could basically get any sort of volunteering and get any sort of job we would be able to find you space at a shelter so you'd have you know like regular routine you'd have your meals paid for and stuff because there was a big shelter in oxford uh, and then we get you into temporary accommodation all the rest of it so to give people the tools to sort of help themselves up yeah but in reality, nine out of every ten people, um, and that, there were problems ranging from from a very small amount of crack or, or little bits and pieces of you know smoking weed to to fully two hundred and fifty pound a day crack and heroin habits. And I don't know about you, man. Like I two hundred and fifty pound a day, and you would get that from from sitting there begging. You know, like I, I've I've never had a job where I've made two hundred and fifty quid in a day, and like let alone like being able to convert that into into hardcore drugs and then put them in your veins yeah there, there were people who desperately desperately needed help and, and needed compassion um but you know that it was impossible for them to be able to get into a place where they could start helping themselves because they had all these other issues that that didn't have government support in order to you know get give them the leg up there were there was there wasn't that much encouragement to for the um, for the services like uh, Turning Point, you know, addiction services, they, they they do fantastic outreach. They go out and try and find people and get them engaged. But um, again, you have this big problem because uh, a lot of people would just turn up to get methadone and um, sort of free drugs. And yeah, it, it's it's really difficult because you can almost tell, and you don't want to do this. You can almost tell the people that that want they they really want to change. You know, they really want to to be able to accept the help, and you can tell the people who can sort of talk a good talk but the reality of it is that they know full well they're not stupid they know that the single thing which is prohibiting them from being able to get into accommodation and i'm not talking about the rest of the the journey here you know like the full recovery and and becoming a a, a working member of society or whatever that means you know paying taxes basically like i don't know about all the rest of it but they knew the sec single biggest thing that was keeping them from holding down a rudimentary contract like a, an accommodation contract and paying a service charge was the fact that they had a problem which meant that every time they got money into their hands be that for a universal credit or or pip or you know like personal independence payments anytime they got money in the hand they couldn't not go and give that money to a dealer and get a bag of crack they, they just they couldn't they had physical physical addictions that that meant that those those things for them were out of they were out of range you know they needed way more acute support they needed way more kind of encouragement and way more um, personalized care and sort of support before they could ever begin to kind of access that support. Um, Hard. What kind of support would help when someone just can't physically control themselves to go to a dealer like that? Uh, what, what would yeah. be a strategy you would use if you had like infinite resources? 
I, I don't know. One one of the biggest things that, that really stuck with me from that job was was um, harm minimization. So you, there's this this phrase that's bandied around quite a lot: harm men. And uh, we would work with doctors, really fantastic doctors, I've got to say, from, from the Luther Street Medical Centre in Oxford, which is the, the medical centre which is next door to the shelter. So basically everyone who was in the shelter would be registered with them. So these doctors and these nurses had incredible experience of working with people with addictions. And we'd go out with them doing welfare checks on people. Mm. And they would say things like, the best thing that you can do to somebody who is really in the depths of those problems is is you, you can't make people's decisions for them you know you can't and you can't expect somebody who is on that kind of panoply of, of very very strong drugs um which produces these physical addictions you cannot expect them to be thinking rationally and logically so what you can do is try and add as much stuff to an encounter with them that will help them minimize the harm that comes to them as possible so <clears throat> there is a school of thought that says you know if you want to do drugs like what is anybody's decision to stop you doing that? Like, where is the freedom thing? And the, like, you should have that sort of personal choice. Mm. And the real kicker from that comes to actually when it affects other people, when it affects society and when it, there's a human cost to it and, and it's dangerous, then yeah, actually there should be an intervention by, by a government, by whoever. But these, these doctors would say things like, <clears throat> like, you know, where the nearest needle exchange is. Like they would tell people about the, the stupidity of sharing needles. They would they would carry naloxone. You know, naloxone is um is a drug similar to kind of how adrenaline works, which is is designed to save somebody who's overdosing. So if oh, somebody yeah. is in the throes of an overdose, you can you can inject them with naloxone. I got trained in doing it, which is one of the coolest things I've ever done. Um, and we would hand out naloxone and be like, "Do you have a kit? No. Why don't you have a kit? Do you know what an overdose looks like? If something happens, what will you do? And all this stuff. And we we give them naloxone, um, and stuff like that. I think that kind of that pays credence to the idea that there will come a time where everyone will have this breakthrough moment where they're like right i need to i need to change something something needs to happen uh, in order for me to stop having to go through all this stuff mm. but i think i think it, you need infinite patience infinite patience from whoever is dealing with the support services because it is very easy to get despondent at people who you 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 can see what the answers are the answer is you know stop smoking crack <laughs> <laughs> that is one of the answers but then again you there are people who hold down jobs who smoke a lot of crack there are people who who have houses and families who smoke a lot of crack so you know is the crack the issue no the issue is is the fact that society is set up to the extent where you have no ability to get yourself back on the ladder once you've fallen off so I, I don't know if if I was if I was the president of the world I would definitely look into um, funding charities which do really cool things that work with these vulnerable groups in order for them to not fall off the wagon in the first place. So I'm talking stuff in Oxford like Tap Social, fantastic example. Like most, I say most, a lot of the people we were working with who were um, rough sleepers were people that were released from prison. You know they'd gone through the system loads and loads, and when they come out of prison for whatever crime, I don't know, shoplifting or something they did when they were homeless. When they come out of prison, they're sent to a halfway house. So the idea is you find some accommodation in the two weeks that you have in this halfway house. No, they never do. You know, they, they're straight back on the streets. So someone like the get two weeks. Is it a two week limit? Sorry. I think so. Yeah. I, I'm, again, I might be being reductive, but like whatever, a lot of people just, you know, fall out of the system there. They're, they're the lost people. The stuff like the top social working with, um, ex-offenders to basically rehabilitate them and, and get them into doing a cool job like brewing beer 
Um, yeah, absolutely phenomenal. Another organisation, Aspire, so basically taking people out on days out to, to learn job skills, um, to do things like um, gardening and landscaping and building things. There's a there's a fantastic um, workshop in, I think it's in Blackbird Lees called um, Raw. And again, like teaching people skills like rebuilding bikes and um, and doing sort of furniture making, giving people the whole idea that if you give a man a fish, he'll eat for a day, you give a man a net, he'll build a fucking hammock and never work again. <laughs> 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 you teach him to fish and he's got, you know, he's got fish ever. <laughs> no, yeah, like, yeah I, I would put way more money into these organizations which are, um, are stimulating people to be able to have autonomy. Okay. As if, if there's anything for me which is like a, a super important thing is, is even when somebody is at their worst possible moment, you know, they're in the throes of heroin withdrawal or in, in an underground car park which stinks of piss and there's needles everywhere. Even when somebody is there, they still have to have the choice over what happens, over what they do. Even if that choice is, you know, there's extraneous factors like crack or heroin or whatever it is that... that affect that judgment you have to try to give people tools to make that judgment as best they can for themselves so all this prescriptive stuff like basically locking them up to try and like sober them out and stuff i don't think it works i I don't think it's right i think you've got to show people the light at the end of the tunnel for them to realize all right there is a light you know like there is something that i can work towards and i can do yeah and the sad thing is like some people will just I don't know why I say this because it's really pessimistic, but some people will be homeless forever because they want to be, you know, they've, they've made that choice and yeah. And it is really sad and it's painful. And you, you see people who uh, have personalities and, and families and, and they're, they're as worthwhile and as worth, they have as much value as anybody, but they, they've chosen and, and you, you can't, you can't fuck with that sometimes. Well, sure. Yeah. If, they, if, if that's what they want to if is it even a case of want to do or just that's how they feel is the easiest way yeah. to live for them personally yeah i think for some people they've been uh, well people i knew in oxford definitely they've been homeless for so long that they built up these really terrible phobias of being indoors like every room was just four fucking walls and a door to them they were all just prisons they didn't want to go anywhere near it but that sounds like a sort of a similar situation to where people will get out of jail and then I think the word is institutionalized where they will just they yeah. will do anything to get back into jail because they can't live they feel they yeah. can't live on the outside world absolutely I, I saw people like that you know I, I take I do assessments with people kind of running through their history and a lot of the time for them this was a fucking really horrible process they'd sit down with it like some young lad who'd very clearly you know i look a bit scruffy but very clearly had a shower that day and had eaten a hot meal and all this stuff they'd sit down with me and i'd be asking them all these really horrible personal questions to try and figure out how to help them but like tell me about your criminal history and a lot of them were like you know they were they could have been my dad but for the grace of like my family and and the people around me that support me and have helped me I, i could be any one of them you know and they were having to sell these things and and i'd meet people who'd been just out of prison and i could almost sort of tell in the least pessimistic way like you do want to go back there because you get this idea of safety from that and if you do something there are very rigid rules there like the the extra amount of free will that you get in the outside world is messing with you because you have been institutionalized it's like they'd always be looking over their shoulder for the person who was going to tell them off like they're too like freedom what what does freedom feel like like can you imagine that after spending like years in a in a cell or something or in a prison where all your movements are taken away like how would you feel when you came out of that you just 
Yeah. You'd either feel liberated or you would feel. I don't even know what the opposite would be, but horrified yeah. by the yeah, really infinity of what you could do. Maybe I yeah. don't know. Is that the word? Is that the right way to put it? <laughs> yeah. I, I think that that time like in that moment where you were like that there, there, there's a real gap in the system where like people fall through that hole i look at some organizations like have you ever heard of emmaus uh no sorry what was that emmaus no yeah really cool organization that um they're all over the uk and, and on the continent as well as uh, some in france and Spain, portugal even maybe and they're an organization that do um like upcycling so you go um they're residential so you go there and they're basically no no drink no drugs they're totally dry um and you when you go there you sort of become part of a family like they're like sort of self-contained communes where you go and you get a room and then you work all day there and you get a little bit of money like pocket money or whatever but the idea is that you you come out of something which is a bit unit like you're part of like a community and rather than being sort of thrown to the sharks you're like right cool come into this other community which is it has less rules it's still quite a lot of rules but it's it's bigger than prison so like you're not going to be so overwhelmed by being out in society and yeah if, if people had low support needs like a mess is fantastic for them and i can see why the model wouldn't work with people who had problems with crack or problems with with heroin or something because it would it would affect the ability for other people to to get on with their own recovery but yeah organizations like that definitely need more investment they need more people need to know about them more people need to engage with them so you're going to be a doctor yeah yeah hopefully i've been so stressed out with like this application for medical school that i was just chain smoking i need to stop before i go because it's not befitting for a medical student (laughs) cigarette at all (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> smoking doctor <laughs> yeah I, I seriously need to like reboot my life for this man <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> I bet more of them do it than you realise yeah 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 probably it's a high stress um, job as well yeah massively I think mo- most of the things actually about the when I went to the interviews on the scariest interviews in my life but like a lot of the stuff in that was them asking you know what are your methods for dealing with stress you you're effectively going to see some like the hairiest shit you could imagine. So you need, you need to be able to let it off because yeah, you see some awful stuff. (laughs) What did you say? Uh, I play guitar. (laughs) (laughs) I get really high. It's better than I, (laughs) I'll just pop up for a wank if it gets too much. When I have to deal with like really serious decisions, when I have to tell somebody that they've got a life threatening disease, just going back quick. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, that's one way to lead to like sexual sadism. Yeah. <laughs> if, you start, if you start like associating bad news with having a wife, <laughs> <laughs> you get some terrible news yourself. And it's like, oh, no. it's uh it's really hard for me to tell you this (laughs) (laughs) did you get in so i got an an offer from manchester to um to go and study there which i'm yeah absolutely over the moon about i uh, when i when i'd come back from um palestine i'd kind of I'd sort of made a decision by that point, like for all the some of the stuff that I've done, 
maybe it's understandable. Like I've, I've gone and worked in international development a lot of times as, as a Western educated white man. And I constantly, constantly come across the whole white knight concept, you know, like riding in to save the day, like part of the international package that, you know, I'm going to come like without any expertise, without any skills, with just loads of goodwill and like change the world. And I worked alongside some fantastic doctors, like during the time at St. Mungo's in Palestine, in Burkina Faso, in Brazil, um, yeah, really passionate people who were armed with all these skills to be able to sort of actually make a difference. So when I came back, I was like, right, I, I want to do this now. I, I, absolutely. So um, I sat the entrance exams. There's, there's like a big um, entrance exam for all UK universities, pretty much for med school. Mm. And, uh, and I sat it thinking, I, I don't I don't have the right A-level, so I'm going to apply next year. But I just want to see how well I do because it's a very difficult test. And, uh, and I sat the test. And, um, you know, I went to... I went to um, this sort of test centre in Oxford where you do your driving test and that every single other person who was doing it is like an 18-year-old, like very bubbly, like, they're well, like up for doing this medical exam. And I'm there, like big old beard, like... Ooh. like got, <laughs> did, did the test and did way better than I thought and thought, oh. sod it, you know, going for it. And uh, yeah, I got top 5% in the country, man. That's good. Yeah, top well 5%? Be. Yeah. That's good. Well, to be fair, like I, I am like 30 up against people who are like 18 so <laughs> kind of had like quite a lot of like a bit of a head start maybe. yeah they um yeah they let me in inexplicably so my biggest heist to date is getting into med school I, funding it is a different thing like i'm really gonna have to struggle to to find the money for it but yeah hence the van i'm gonna live in a van <laughs> <laughs> man every time i open the door of the van i just want to be sick like i'm staring down the barrel of like living in a sprinter van for seven years <laughs> seven years fuck yeah. um uh, are you youtubing it like have you ever fit a toilet before <laughs> no so <laughs> <in> the <laughs> much to my brother's dismay because he's like he he lived in a van when he was in med school and kind of he's walking me through a lot of the process which is really helpful but much to his dismay i've not actually built a toilet <laughs> he's like <laughs> are you gonna shit <laughs> My, my whole idea is I'll get there, I'll get a gym membership, and then every day I can just shower and shit in the gym. <laughs> <laughs> rock up. Do no working out at all. Just rock up, lay down a Cleveland steamer, have a sauna, and off I go. <laughs> <laughs> go block in the toilet. <laughs> for three days. <laughs> Absolute death charge in fucking... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking I'll just I'll just use the university toilets, but Manchester's toilets are all like gender neutral toilets. <laughs> are they really? <laughs> are they, are the, worst, <laughs> the worst place imaginable to to leave a a, a nasty. Oh yeah, that'd be horrible. Do it laying like a massive one, and then like a, a ladies on the outside. <laughs> Some ladies have to hear you like. <laughs> yeah. That is very unfair on the ladies, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I know what my shits are like. <laughs> oh, that's fascinating. Uh, so, uh, where where do you want to take your doctorate once you've uh, after the seven years of gym shit? Yeah, really good question. Um, so at the moment, I'm I'm erring towards psychiatry. Like I'm, I'm really interested in, in, um, cognitive development. I'm really interested in the state of our psychiatric system in the UK. Like it, 
I've, I've had limited experience of dealing with it through having mental health problems myself and, and knowing people who have and they've gone through kind of psychiatric intervention and stuff like that and, and people you know friends of ours that have been institutionalized and it seems like there is a, a dearth of of people in psychiatry and I, I might be totally wrong that i don't know it almost feels like the system is very sort of set up to, to medicate and, and and have to ameliorate problems I'd, I'd quite like to, to understand more about the way it works and, and, and to help people try and put themselves back together in that way. But, you know, psychiatry is, is meant to be one of those branches of medicine where it's quite, I think I was saying this to you before, it, there's a danger that you you wouldn't get the same thing out of the, the medicine that you're doing there because a lot of the time people, like their prognosis is that they're not going to have a full recovery. You know, if, if someone comes in and they're, they're having a really serious pain and they've got appendicitis, you can diagnose appendicitis. You can say what you need. You need an appendectomy. And once the appendix comes out, you can say there are these risks. There is this aftercare. You can go through all that stuff. But And it's a very sort of simple, here's, here's the problem, here's the solution, here's the aftercare. And the way you deviate from that would be very minor. Whereas with psychiatry, a lot of the time, like the prognosis is that people won't, they're not going to shift a, a long-term psychiatric condition. So what can you do to make their lives easier? What can you do to make their lives better? What can you do to sort of ameliorate the symptoms? I'm convinced that like medicating the world isn't the answer. So I don't know. So psychiatry is like, is one of the things I'm thinking about, but at the same time, like I, I've had like almost like a previous life of, of working in, in internationally and in refugee camps and in developing countries. And I'd love to be able to take medicine out there, you know, do rural medicine. Um, yeah. One of the things I didn't really realize before I, um, before I applied is that is how much of a focus that there is in the teaching and in the sort of literature about you have to become a real realist. You have to realize that there are only finite amount of resources and your job as a doctor will be to kind of allocate these resources as best as you can, knowing full well that you cannot give everybody like the possible best thing. You know, like not everybody comes in, will be able to have this life changing surgery or, or, or this medication, which costs like thousands of pounds. You, you just can't do it as much as you'd want to. So it seems to me like rural medicine and working in developing countries is, is such an acute balancing act that like, I'd, yeah, it, it really interests me and intrigues me. So maybe something like that. Oh, fair enough. Mm. Are you worried at all that your criminal history might make you getting a job hard at the end of it, as we were just discussing the other day? Yeah, so I'm, I'm going through the motions at the moment. So you, you obviously, you, you have to meet a phenomenal set of guidelines to, to join the GMC, the General Medical Council. So um, they have very, very strict kind of requirements of what they want from people who are going to be prospective doctors. You have to abide by the standards and show that you're, you know, fit to, to be in a job which has that ultimate level of responsibility. So, yeah, they, you, you get DBS checked as, as a matter of course. And, and having stuff on my record has meant that I'm, I'm immediately going in front of, you know, in front of panels for fitness to practice to, to question my suitability for it, which is right and good. You know, like everyone should get really heavily vetted for it. And they, I've had to have these conversations with employers like time and time again, where I have to tell them about what's on my criminal record. And at times it's, it's obviously, it's never a fun thing. You never want to have to do that, but actually like in a, in a reflective sense, like, Every time that, you, that I have to do it, I, I run through these things that are from, you know, misspent childhood and mistakes that I've made that hopefully I've learned from. And being able to go through that process with an interview is like, is a cathartic thing. You know, it's, 
you you process things together and, sh- and try to demonstrate what you have learned and it, it even if you're going through the motions of saying like oh, i learned something from this like you you have to reflect on it you know so it's yeah that's been good so at the moment i'm at that stage with them so they they, they know everything about my my criminal record and um so that gives you confidence uh the fact you get vetted earlier that uh, a hospital isn't just going to turn around in the future and say like fuck you basically yeah yeah so if i'm into the medicine course then then i'm in um and i think that i've done it um i've I've still got a couple of things to jump through but because because these things are on my record like forever I, i will have to go back every single year and sit in front of a fitness practice board and and then say you know is there anything new on this like what how does the stuff on your record affect your life what did you learn from it and that sort of thing so i think it's good I, there was a massive focus on making sure that this got happened this happened with doctors after there were a lot of high profile you know things like shipman <laughs> yeah. so like, you, again, you need to vet your doctors man like you yeah. absolutely need to do it because yeah they're, they're a figure in in society where you don't question their judgment do you they're like when you're in a, a doctor's office they're sort of like all powerful kind of all knowing and you, and you wouldn't, as a patient, you've got that power dynamic where you wouldn't question their judgment. So knowing that there are ways and means going on behind the scenes that, that double check those, yeah, it's, it's a comforting thing. And, and it's yeah. right that I have to go through it, but it still fucking sucks. Like, it's really yeah. scary. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you about to uh, relive the story. You'd, we don't have to include this in the podcast if you don't want, but when you... <laughs> so you're walking home there's a big pile of newspapers outside the shop <laughs> yeah. do you do you remember it at all i remember f- fleeting bits of it and you know i'm not sure how much of it is um is real and how much i've confabulated in order to fill the gaps and tell a better story yeah i uh so i i remember i remember I remember the night out, you know, I had an absolutely cracking night out. My last memories of that night were like vague ones of flicking this lit cigarette and then um, waking up in the morning and having a message from Ryan saying, ah, you're, you're, uh, you're on a wanted poster, mate. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so you literally just ch- chucked a cigarette and that's how it happened. Yeah, dumbest thing ever, man. Like not even epic at all. I just flicked it as I walked. You know, like... <laughs> always with security cameras they're like have you seen this person and usually you can't tell because everyone looks the same but it's very obviously <laughs> you <laughs> have you seen this person the only six foot white guy wanted with dreadlocks yeah, like. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> have you seen this person oh, i wonder <laughs> yeah sexiest man in jamaica it's because you had like uh you almost you, you you were so recognizable from your features like you had dreads and you'd like you're a bit taller and i i don't know what you're wearing like a man united shirt <laughs> <laughs> absolute hooligan <laughs> oh what a state. oh shit so you've got a criminal record for essentially just not putting a cigarette out properly yeah yeah i mean it, it it just shows like how quickly something can escalate right but to be fair like it, it it would have been so i i have to i have to take ownership of this like it would have been criminal damage if it wasn't for the fact that there were people living at the back of where that was you know there were people there and and they lived behind there so it, it stopped being a criminal damage thing and became like it was a risk to people's lives so oh. that's why it became an arson but um yeah i was really lucky that that they were so cool about it and and at the same time that like i had the means to pay it off because 
what else do you do? Like immediately I had to go and hand myself in. I had to say, look, this guy on the poster is me. <laughs> yeah, you can just carry on going in the shop. and then <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I like I called the police right there and then and like went through the motions and like and not the first time like I've, I've been around the police or interacted with the police. So kind of like, yeah, yeah. different going through the process sober. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, so, it sucked. It, it totally sucked. And and these these things like it, they follow you around for life. Like if you, if I've worked with vulnerable people left, right, and center, and and for loads of, of jobs where I've had to do an enhanced DBS. So mm-hmm. these things will never leave me. Oh shit! So you are you allowed back in the shop after that? Yeah. So funnily enough, after I had a haircut and looked more like a reasonable member of society, nobody recognised me. Oh, for <laughs> <So>, real. <laughs> but after I cut my dreads off, I was like, yeah, sweet, just go back in. <laughs> should have done this at the time <laughs> you should have just come off straight away yeah. Yeah. you went in with like shaved head and like suit they were like yeah the liverpool top <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what are you on about i don't know this guy yeah <laughs> he said man you before man you <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, that's so funny what um have you got other was it drunk and disorderly yeah, so that fantastic thing on on Christmas Eve of uh, <laughs> there was a big old fight in the Swan, and um, and I was nothing to do with it. I just unfortunately looked quite similar to someone who was to do with it. And as I was leaving, um, on Christmas Eve, you know, like late at night, policeman was like, "Oh, you um, you uh, you've been involved in a fight at the back. You have to stay here." Well, like, I haven't been involved in any fight, officer. But I haven't going home. Yeah, like were you not? you have to stay here and be questioned like i don't think so it's christmas eve i'm going home sir oh, no. so I, I turned around and went to leave and uh, and the good long arm of the law slapped a bracelet on my back on, on my hand which was down by the side and uh, and i i've this real thing about my wrists you know yeah i went i, I, I like kind of claustrophobic about like things holding my wrists and as you can imagine a uh, handcuff is like the least that's the thing that I want the least. Yeah. <laughs> as it's soon not as like I a feel fluffy funky. handcuff, it's like a you know, it's like <laughs> sex. It's a, a a cold steel. Is it steel? Steel handcuff. Exactly. And they got the exactly. plastic thing in between, so you can't really move it. Unyielding, it was. Anyway, like I say, unyielding. I I realised that this thing was attached to me, and and went to pull my arms in front of me to like get it off me. But you know, I'm a six foot bloke, and and I'm quite thick set. So when I did that, the policeman who was attached to the other side of that handcuff <laughs> thrown, into the window of, uh, thrown into the window of the dolphin hardware <laughs> so you accidentally yeah. threw a policeman through a window just by being stronger than the policeman yeah and then i looked around and i realized i'm fucked <laughs> so like Oops. about 10 of them jumped at me and like, like pen- me. <laughs> yeah see the floor yeah whoopsie <laughs> yeah got me on the ground rubbed my head on the ground like when i woke up in the cell like i had gravel in my ear from when they rubbed my head on the ground oh, fuck. yeah and they dragged me off and um yeah drunk and disorderly resisting arrest resisting that's the best one on my record oh fuck did you ever find out who it was yeah i, I reckon it was that there's that i don't know if you remember him you might do there was there was some like older bloke who used to drink in the swan who looked basically like me in 30 years time i don't know who that is yeah he's a real like wanted head like if you saw him you'd definitely recognize him they were like as a report there's an older version of you fighting 
<laughs> you thought you could step backwards through time yeah, to avoid yeah. us. <laughs> time machine trick would would uh, work on us. <laughs> you were dicked. And you had some kind of like street fighter exit. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, Brutal. man, that's so bad. Oh, that sucks. Yeah. Cool, man. Well, thanks for doing this. No, no worries. It's fun to talk to you, man. Yeah, definitely to you too. Yeah, let me come down. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, fair enough. Hopefully, stuff will be. We can sit on the beach and have a socially distanced, delectable beverage. <laughs> can I use your toilet socially? <laughs> <laughs> it means you don't sit on the toilet. You kind of had a poo from like far away. Have you seen that? Oh, is it Tub Girl where the girls like shitting on stuff? <laughs> <laughs> no, but you send don't me that. <laughs> uh, okay, don't Google it. <laughs> cool, man. Well, it's nice to chat to you. You too, buddy. Take care. Hey, thanks for listening, and thank you to Tommy for joining me. I have set up an email address in the contact section of the website so that you listeners can send any feedback, positive or negative. Hopefully, talk at you again soon.